This is episode 90 of the Death to Tyrants podcast. The crushing weight of the tyrant's passage has left nothing unmarked. You get split in fucking half, cause I call him the hologram wrath. But I am the center inside the placenta of math. You clash with cyanide gas and die fast. Rhythmical equivalent of solids, liquid, and gas. We smash a sinus with the power of Lord Titus. But I am the virus inside of the iris of Cyrus. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back, you guys, to the Death to Tyrants podcast. As always, I am still your host and humble narrator, Buck Johnson, coming to you out of Austin, Texas. And here it is, one of the topics that I was so excited to do. I love reading and talking about intellectual property. And if you're going to do that on a podcast, many of you know there's one man to bring on that knows more about it than everyone, and that is Stefan Kinsella. His great little pamphlet slash book, I guess you could call it, Against Intellectual Property, is kind of at the heart of this discussion. And I urge you all to get it online, of course, at the wonderful Mises Institute. It's actually for free on there, or you can order it and pay them a little money. Against Intellectual Property, it's, it's more of a contentious stance than I had imagined at first. I put some feelers out there on the Death to Tyrants Facebook page. And yeah, it got way more response than I thought. And it's kind of good. I'm glad a lot of people besides myself are interested in this topic. I find it fascinating. And I love hearing Stefan Kinsella talk about it. He's very articulate and extremely knowledgeable, as you're going to see in this interview, extremely knowledgeable on this topic and really a lot of topics. So I'm a musician. A lot of you guys know that. And I know there's some musicians listening to this podcast. And that's where it gets to be a personal issue for a lot of people. Can you own the idea that you came up with? Can you trademark your design, your label? Can you copyright a song that you wrote? I mean, obviously you can in this day and age, but is it morally right and legitimate in a libertarian society? That's what we're going to get into today. I want you guys to open your minds because coming into this with a closed mind is going to do you no good. You can trust me. You guys know that. I wouldn't bring someone in to talk about this subject that wasn't so extremely knowledgeable and well-versed and can literally give you the ins and outs of every aspect of intellectual property. And uh, I'll waste your time no longer. Let's get to our guest. He is back on the show, and I'm so stoked that he's here. Stefan Kinsella, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hey, Buck. So I know what you do because we've discussed it before. And I actually, the last time I had you on, I neglected to ask you something specific about what you do. But before I do that, for those listening who are new to uh, Stefan Kinsella, um, talk about what you do down there in Houston. Yeah, I always get, um, when I hear podcasts, I always get a little bit annoyed because I'm probably kind of OCD. And I always think like, at the beginning of the podcast, the host should say who they are, what the name of the podcast is, the date they're recording it, uh, you know, because, hey, in 95 years, someone's listening to this, these space aliens that are uh, digging up the ice cubes from the AI movie, <laughs> and they're going to want to know what they're listening to. Um, <laughs> I always want to give too much context. Um, so this is January of 2020, right? Yes. There we and go. And I'm in Houston, Texas. I'm a patent attorney and a libertarian writer in Houston. And I've written a lot on different libertarian uh, theory issues, uh, rights theory, contract theory, and 
um, law and economics, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm an Austrian and an anarchist and a long time one of both. But I've also specialized a lot in writing on the topic of patent and copyright law and related areas of so-called uh, intellectual property law. And uh, that's what I talk a lot about because that topic is one of increasing interest and uh, it's a topic that uh, is increasingly important and a lot of people don't know a lot about it or they have confused notions about it or they argue about it a lot as we were just talking about in the uh, sort of the pre-show. Okay, so what I, I keep wanting to ask you, even when I hear you on other platforms, you're a patent attorney, correct? Yes. Okay. Do you represent the company or person that owns a patent and has it violated, or do you represent the people that, quote-unquote, violate someone else's patent? Right. Um, yeah, there are different types of patent uh, attorney specialties uh, in, 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 in this type of practice. Um, what I have tended to specialize in is helping certain companies acquire patent portfolios. In other words, I help them apply for patent applications and get patents. Um, you can think of it as, as an analog of someone who makes bullets or weapons, and you sell these weapons to people. You sell good weapons to people or good bullets. And some of these bullets or weapons might fall into the wrong hands, you know, and used for aggressive purposes. Uh, but sometimes they're used for defensive purposes. Okay. So okay. That's how I look at it. Um, now, if I was, uh, and I've also defended clients on the defense side. So when they're sued for patent infringement by someone else because of their patent, I have represented many of these clients before or been part of the part of the defense team. Uh, as of yet, I have never defended – I have never taken the side of, a, of someone asserting a patent against an innocent victim, and I would, I would not do that. That's my personal – like that's my moral line. I wouldn't do that. I've never done that. Um, if I had a client that wanted me to help assert one of the patents that I helped them get, I wouldn't do it because I think you can – I think it's fine to use it in defense. So, for example, the way I look at it is I help these companies acquire patent portfolios that they need to have to avoid being sitting ducks and victims of other companies that hold patents. Mm -hmm. The whole system is a waste, right? I mean, so I, I, there's companies acquiring patents. Even in my ideal libertarian perspective, it's all a waste because they're just acquiring them not to use them against each other. Um, so ideally, no one would ever use a patent. So everyone would have their arsenal of patents, which would keep people from suing them for patent infringement because of fear of a countersuit, which means that what's the point of having them in the first place and paying my salary to get these patents in the first place? Like the whole thing at best is a waste, right? a dead drag on the economy. Um, but no, so personally, I don't – this is what one mistake people make when they attack me like these pro-IP sure. Randian libertarians. They'll say, oh, you're a hypocrite. And I never understand that argument because they don't even understand enough about the, the distinction between patent law, copyright, and trademarks, much less the subdivisions of practice within patent law, which would be patent prosecution, which is what I do, or patent litigation, which could be defense side or, or assertion side. They don't even understand the difference, so they just want to say you're a hypocrite. But even that argument is not a good argument. <laughs> so, what if you prove it? so what if you prove someone's a hypocrite? 
does that mean that they're wrong? I mean, if Martin Luther King was a, a philanderer and a hypocrite, does that mean that he was wrong to support equal rights for for blacks? Right. Right. I mean, like the whole the whole argument is just a, a gotcha argument. Yeah. It's not a sincere argument. It's like let's talk about substance, please. Right. Or right. patents, because Stephen Kinsella might be a hypocrite. Does that mean patents are justified? Is that your argument for the IP system? I mean, it makes no sense, right? So let's let's just focus on the substance. Exactly. Well, then let's do that ourselves. And I love reading your writings on intellectual property, which from here, from here on out, I will call IP. And that's what I want to chat about. I've done a little testing the waters amongst my listening audience, and I think we've got a bigger job than I realized today trying to show why IP is not a good thing, at least as we know it. I guess that's something you're used to. It, it kind of shocked me, to be honest with you, that it was uh, it got people kind of fired up. Is uh, That's something you're used to, I suppose? Oh, very. Yeah, over the... I mean, I've been writing on this since 1990, let's say, 5 or 1994. So it's over 20, well over 20 years now. And uh, as a patent lawyer, too, which is why I started doing it. I was a patent attorney, but a libertarian. And so, of course, I started thinking there's something about this whole copyright patent system that all the arguments don't quite make sense because I'm a patent lawyer now. So I understand like how the law works. So let me let me try to figure it out myself. I'll, like, I'm gonna, this is going to be my niche in the libertarian movement. I'm going to figure this out. So I, I will tell people, here's the real way to justify intellectual property rights. But – I kept stumbling and failing. And, you know, at first I thought it's because, well, I'm just, I'm not the, I'm not the one to do it. I don't have enough mental ability to do this. Someone else has to do it, but uh, that wasn't it. I mean, I, I really started understanding everything like, Oh, here's how Austrian economics works. Here's what scarcity means. Here's how human action works. Here's what the non-aggression principle works, uh, uh, means. Um, here's why we have property rights. Here's the real nature of patent law and copyright law. Ah, now I see why I kept failing trying to justify it and why – and then I started thinking, okay, then why was everyone else wrong? Mm -hmm. And in what ways were they wrong? And because, I mean, I'm just a regular guy from Louisiana. I'm just a patent lawyer. I have a diligent libertarian uh, thinker. I've studied all this pretty systematically, so I only know so much, but – I think at this point, unfortunately, I'm like probably – there's not many people in the world that I would trust that know more than me about the combination of IP law like as law exists and as mm -hmm. it's practiced mm -hmm. um, and uh, Austrian theory and radical uh, libertarian and anarchist propertarian type analysis. So everyone I read is disappointing to me. There's a few people that are bright stars who are, who are impressive um, in certain ways, but they always fail. I mean the people that are pro-IP. <laughs> right. So basically what I'm saying, I have never, to be honest, never, ever, ever, I've never yet heard a good argument for IP. Now, I don't mean one that I agree with. I just mean not even a good one for IP. They are all just – it's like when you say America was the best country in World War II. Or, you know, it's like because you've been taught that in school, mm -hmm. you never hear a reasoned analysis that carefully distinguishes types of – you'll hear someone like Richard Epstein who's impressive and he's a good economist uh, or a good legal theorist economist, um, even though he's not Austrian. But 
he's not a practitioner. He doesn't, I don't think he even understands how, like it's all theoretical to him. He'll, he'll come up with abstract reasons why in theory there's a market failure and there's an underproduction of innovation because of the public free rider problem, you know, all this Chicago crap. Mm -hmm. And then therefore the government comes in and has patent copyright law to make up this problem. And then you're like, well, that's the story they give, but mm -hmm. is that really how it happened? And does that argument, does it make sense? Because where's your data? I mean, if you're an empiricist, where's your data? Okay, I can understand the, the framers of the U.S. Constitution, the founders, in 1787 drafting the Constitution saying, let's throw in a copyright and patent clause because England has had this for about 200 years, roughly. Which they had, by the way, because of the statute of monopolies and the statute of Anne, which were had nothing to do with the free market. They were total government intrusions into the free market, which everyone recognized. They called them privileges, government-granted monopolies or privileges. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the famers threw that in there, and of course the Congress enacted this in 1790, 1790, 91, the very next year, as soon as the Constitution was ratified in 1789, right? They ratified it. So we had these patent and copyright acts. So at the very beginning of the dawn of the most important Western industrial nation, maybe next to the UK, but you know the US, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, when all this amazing technological and, and the wealth started growing, uh, the US had embedded in the system the patent and copyright system. And all the supporters and critics of what we call capitalism, which is represented by basically America, right, in the West, and the Constitution, they think of what's now called intellectual property as part of property, property rights, the free market, and the capitalist Western system. So they link these things together. And so, hey, the West has been successful. So how could you, if you oppose IP, you're a commie. <laughs> I mean, this is, their, this is the level they're thinking. Mm -hmm. If you, if you oppose IP, it's called property, so that means you're against property rights, which mm -hmm. means you're against America and patriotism and you know. And so this is the kind of argument you get all the time. Um, but my point is that if you read the actual constitutional provision, it's one sentence. It just says, you know, to promote the progress of the arts and the sciences, um, Congress has the power to enact these limited monopoly privileges, <laughs> copyright and patent law. Um, so the, the whole provision is explicitly utilitarian and empirical. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not a natural rights argument. It's not saying that you have a natural right to have to be free from competition and to have the government protect you from competition, which is what these laws do. <clears throat> I mean, copyright law protects you from people copying your work and competing with you. Patent law pr protects you from people uh, emulating your in innovations, your technical innovations or, or inventions and competing with you. It's basically protectionist and mercantilist and anti-free market. Um, but the idea was that we have to give people a little breathing room, a little protection from competition for 15 years or something like that so that they have time to get off the ground. It's almost like the infant industry argument, you know, like where we say that, oh, we have to have tariffs uh, to protect the American steel industry from Japanese or European whatever competitors. So that we can have a homegrown industry that can grow. This is pure market manipulation. This is not the free market. This mm -hmm. is statist interventionism. Um, and that's exactly what the patent and copyright system are. And it was never denied 
originally by the original um, people that were for it, which was the the publishing industry in the face of in the in the fact of copyrights, and the people that received monopoly grants of of privilege in the case of patents, and then the crown who was granting these privileges and getting favors back in return. Um, everyone admitted this was just like a limited duration monopoly privilege, which the state needs to do to fix the you know excesses of the free market or to get advantages for the state or whatever. But what happened was in the 18th century, in the you know um, I'm sorry, in the in the in, in the 1800s, uh, in the 19th century, um, there became a rising uh, credo of of like the free market economists, right? Because the Industrial Revolution was happening. Britain was expanding prosperously. The U.S. was expanding. Uh, Europe was doing better. And everyone's trying to explain what, why are we getting exponentially better, right? And so um, you had these free market economists starting to observe, why do we have the government granting protectionist, you know, Grants of privilege which protect people from competition, patents and copyrights. So there started to be a backlash. Like the free market economists started thinking, wait, why are we? Why do we even have the, the patent and the copyright system? And they started questioning it. And in response, some of the industries that had started to, to become to become entrenched and dependent upon these systems at this point, like the publishing industry. Um, soon to be the music industry in Hollywood later, um, and then in the case of technical innovations, the pharmaceutical industry and other technical innovations like airplanes, uh, which it delayed the airplane for like 20, 30 years, it, uh, the electric light bulb. I mean, there's all these patent war. I mean, it's crazy. People, people forget these histories. But the point is the entrenched industries fought back, and they said – Listen, you guys keep denigrating these these rights that the government gives us as um, as monopoly privileges, which are in contrary to the free market, right? Um, they're not though; they're really natural rights. They're property rights, uh, and people say, "Well, what do you mean they're a property right? They're uh, property rights are rights in physical, material things like your 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 horse, or your or your or your farm, right? Or your truck, or or your tractor, or or your or your tools." Or even your body, but they're physical things. And the answer was, well, uh, it's a special type of property. It's uh, it's intellectual property. So that's how the term came. The term came about as a rearguard defense of IP by entrenched industries in the 1800s because the free market economists were starting to notice that this is all bullshit and we should abolish it. Um, and so then people finally got – they won the battle. I mean they won the battle. The IP guys won. And IP became the term. So now we call it intellectual property. And people say things like, well, of course it's property because you can sell it and it has a market value, which is the stupidest argument because you could make the same argument about slavery, right? I mean, we could own African slaves. They had a fair market value. They contributed to your plantation. They helped you pick the cotton. They were like machines. Great. Okay, so just because the law and economics can treat something as a resource doesn't even address the the justice issue, the fairness issue, the rightness issue, the normative issue, the legal issue. Of course, people shouldn't be slaves, and of course, ideas shouldn't be property. So that's a really concise, precise overview of, of the kind of way I look at all this. Um, 
And it's mind blowing to get to this point. It took me 15, 10, 10 years to get to that point. Um, but once you see it a certain way, everything becomes obvious. IP is everywhere. It's like that movie, The Sixth Sense. You know, he's he's ghosts everywhere. If you start understanding how pervasive this mentality is, you'll see it everywhere. People use the word stealing, for example, all the time to talk about things that are not really stealing. They use the word piracy to refer to things that are not piracy. They'll call something theft that's not theft. What they really mean is someone competed with me, like someone copied from me. If, if I steal your girlfriend, I didn't really steal her because you didn't own her. <laughs> Right. If I steal your customers by having a competing pizza restaurant, I'm not stealing your customers. Right. Um, if I if I copy your design of your new iPhone, I'm not really stealing your iPhone. I'm making a copy that's similar, and I'm competing with you for customers, which you don't own and I don't own. So you have all these terms which are thrown about, and they it's I call that equivocation, right, or question begging or loaded questions. Um, if you say someone, well, why are you in favor of stealing? That's like saying, well, why do you beat your wife? <laughs> you know, it's 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 just unfair and it's it's dishonest. So I want to definitely let you navigate this as you see fit. Do you think um, usually when you start off discussing this with people is a good place to start with an explanation of what we mean by rights and where they originate from? Yeah, I think it depends on how much time you have and how much. Uh, <laughs> how abstract the person is wanting to get into things. But basically, um, it really boils down to the concept about property, right? Yes. Yeah. So people use the term property in different ways, and we're so used to it. And to be fair, most people are not socialist, anti-propertarian, like Bernie Sanders types. Like They're not commies. They're kind of in favor of property because they're, you know, they're in favor of capitalism in the West. I think roughly, even though they're willing to have the government come in and fix the the deviations, right, and the problems, right? Like we can't have unbridled capitalism. We we certainly can't have unbridled <laughs> competition or free markets. We need to tame the excesses of the free market by having a minimum wage law and union rights and all this kind of crap. So everyone compromises. But the point is they generally think of property as a as not a pejorative but it's like a good thing like property is the things that you own but because our society is so prosperous and rich and now it's legalistic that is the legal system which protects property rights controls everything people tend to combine in their minds um uh the the basic economic concepts and their origins with the legal treatment of them now. So they become what's called legal positivists. Like they, 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 they start thinking of law as whatever the government says. And so even when the government deviates from a natural law or a natural point of view um, and infringes on the natural or pure free market, now they say, well, that's what you have to do to have a working society. That's what democracy is about, all this kind of stuff, right? So – they start thinking of property as the set of legal rights that the government grants and protects, more, most of which could be justified in a moral argument, but these people don't have the 
intellectual ability to even think that way. They don't try that anymore. They just they accept that we're in a fair society because we're more modern than the past. We must be better, right? Um, and so they start thinking of anything with economic value that the government gives you as a property right. So you'll even I mean, if you remember, like you know, these kind of Tea Party guys fifteen years ago, they would say bizarre things like. We want the government to keep their cotton-picking hands off of our social security payments. <laughs> it's like, like wait, so so there, so because you've been and you'll hear this repeated many times. Like, oh, I have a property right to that social security payment because I paid into it. Mm-hmm. So they bought into the stupid, you know, they bought into the all the bullshit justifications for it that are given just to get it going. But it of course makes no sense from my point of view. It's it's all theft. It's all a Ponzi scheme. Um. It is true that if you paid into it, so to speak, that if you don't get something back at the end, that you're made worse off. That is true. And you could even make an argument that you deserve to get this Social Security payment or that there's nothing wrong with it because you're just getting restitution from the state. You know, you can make these kind of crazy libertarian arguments, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying that it's a property right because they're used to it. They're used to people getting, you know, their medic, their Medicaid paid for, whatever the hell they do, you know. Um, if if you have a public school around the corner and it's subsidized by your property taxes, you start thinking of it's your pro, it's your right to to send your kid to this school at a at a reduced rate. Mm-hmm. So people get used to this kind of thing, and so because the system that has grown up around the copyright system and the patent system has resulted in this bizarre system we have of publishers. And agents and Hollywood studios on the on the copyright side, and in the field of royalties and permissions and licensing fees in the in in the technical fields like pharmaceutical and software and all this, um, and because every now and then someone makes money by being a YouTube star or by licensing their name or their trademark. People start thinking, well, I didn't hurt anyone to do this, and that was because of my hard work, right? Which is true, usually, um, which harkens back to the Marxian mm-hmm. labor theory of value, by the way. The mm-hmm. idea that the reason things have a value is because of the labor people put into it, and then capitalists, when they, when they make a profit off of their employees, they're exploiting the surplus value of their labor. So it all ties together. All these confusions about the source of value. So to me, if someone's really interested, it really goes back to the fundamental and simple, very simple actually, um, notion of property. What is property? What are property rights? Why does it emerge as an institution? And then what's the distinction between the economic and the legal, right, or the normal or morative concept of property? Because people conflate those things. And so that's where you have to go. And ultimately, the story is pretty simple, actually. It's very – in a way, it's very consequential. It's just like we humans in society – and this is where we get to Mises and Austrian economics, why I like all this stuff. Um, Mises was the preeminent Austrian economist, free market economist, you could say, and he systematized the work done by previous thinkers like Bob Bavirk and Karl Minger. And he came up with what he called praxeology, which sounds daunting and sounds confusing, but it was just the word he came up with to mean pra- – praxis means like practice, like to act. To, to, so it means the logic of action. So what he means is the study of economics at root really is 
the study of the implications of human action, like when we choose human choice. <clears throat> so when humans act, what can we figure out from these basic facts and from what we see around the world and how people get together? So all this is the study of economics and praxeology, and this leads to an understanding of what property is. Right. So in the basic economic sense, human beings, even by themselves, like Rob, the classic example is Crusoe, Robinson Crusoe, alone on a desert island, even before the second guy Friday arrived. Like, what would he do? He would have to act every day. He would have to act every minute, make choices, use resources in the world to try to achieve his ends. This is what economics is about, using resources to achieve your end. Using these resources means using scarce resources, meaning resources that once you use it up for a certain purpose, you can't use it again. So you got to make a choice. What's the more important way to use this thing, right? I mean, if I find a cane rod, I might use it as a fishing pole to catch fish, or I could use it as target practice to throw it as a spear at the local coconut tree, but that would be a waste because now I won't catch fish and I won't eat. You know, all these things factor in together in economic theory, capital theory, production. All this interest rates, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, opportunity cost, profit and loss, all these things are basic categories that come out of thinking of human action in these very simple atomistic terms. Using means to achieve ends. That's it. But when other people arrive on the scene, like Friday or even more people in a normal world where there's society, we live with among other people. This is a good thing because we're social animals. We get to live with other people. It makes us happy. You can have a wife. You can have a family. You can have a community. Um, and you can have also trade, exchange. Then you start having division of labor, and everyone gets richer because people specialize in what they want to specialize in. So there's so many benefits to having society. But once you have society, once you have other human actors, other other people to interact with, the interaction is not always – cooperative and always good, which is what economics usually studies. Sometimes there's a conflict between two people over a resource that they both want to use because this is the nature of our lives and the universe and the world is that we are finite beings that control a scarce resource to achieve an end. And if I'm using it, someone else can't use it. So this leads to the possibility of cooperation and trade and division of labor and wealth and prosperity and harmony and society, but it also leads to the possibility that we could have conflict. So the entire purpose of property rights is to say, look, those of us who really want to live in a civilized societal way with each other, to live in cooperation and to benefit from trade, because there's these scarce things out there that we all want to use – we need to have some rules to say who gets to use it. So we come up with these rules, and these rules have to be natural in the sense that there can be intuitive, people can understand them, and they, they comply with people's ethical intuitions, right? One of which is that someone has to use this thing in the first place for it to ever be used. Someone's got to go use this resource, right? Which means that you have to condone the first use principle. And because you don't want someone to be able to steal your property from you, because we don't want conflict, you have to say that the first user has a better claim than later users. Those very basic insights lead to the entire system of private law that we've had in the West and in the world. In any society that survived beyond the hunter-gatherer 
existence, the common law, the Roman law, the private law, the basic idea that whoever owns a resource first gets to keep it until he gives it to someone else voluntarily by contract. That's basically it, and then contract. So that's the entire essence of libertarianism if you apply all these rules consistently. And what property is, is property is the word we use to refer to these objects that people have ownership of or property rights in. So once you understand all that, you understand that the entire purpose of property is a solution to the problem of conflict that humans have over these scarce resources in the world, which means that the entire nature of property is simply to answer this question. When two or more people have a dispute, they both want to use this resource, but they're going to go to some kind of civilized forum, the community, a judge, a court, uh, the legal system. They're going to say, okay, we both want to use this. Which one of us has a better claim? The answer will be the answer that you get when you refer to these basic principles. Who had it first? Did you sell it to this guy? Like if A had the thing first and B just came across later and took his cow from him or his his land or his plow or his farm, then A would say – A would win because A had it first and the other guy is an interloper. But if A contractually sold the farm to B or to B's grandfather or ancestor in title, we call it, then C, B would have a better claim by contract. So if you just apply contract – and original appropriation, which is first use of a resource, you can solve almost every dispute. But the point is you're trying to solve a dispute. Two or more people have a dispute about who should get to control a resource. So this is what property rights are. And then we come to intellectual property. The problem is that, that there's been a deflection by the IP advocates, and they want to change the term. They want to say that it's the idea that's owned, right? The mm -hmm. idea. You came up with an idea, so you should own it because you should have the economic value of this idea that you came up with, whether it's your name or a novel or a map uh, or a painting or a movie or a song or a mousetrap, right? You, if you come up with it, you're the owner. So they want to change the focus to the question of who owns the idea. But that is a step that goes too far because it omits the original inquiry, which was simply the property rights inquiry, which was when you have a dispute over the type of resource that can be disputed, who is the owner? And the answer is always clear if you put it that way. So – for example, in copyright or patent, the dispute is not really over who owns an idea. It's who owns a tangible, scarce resource. So for example, if I can sue you to stop you from selling copies of my Harry Potter novel, like I'm J.K. Rowling from the UK, what that means is the dispute's really over who can use your printing press the way you see fit. Mm -hmm. who, who can use your printing press and your ink? Can you use it or can J.K. Rowling – tell you how not to use it. And that's ultimately what, pro what patent rights and copyrights do. So, or if, I, if, if Apple can sue, um, I don't know, Motorola or Samsung or whoever they sued for the iPhone thing back, the design patent back in 2010 or whatever it was, the question is, who owns the, the glass and the silicon and the factories that Samsung controls and wants to use to make these 
these Android smartphones, right? Who owns that? Is it Apple or is it Samsung? Now, if you ask it that way, the answer is obvious. Samsung owns it. And they're not creating a tort. They're not infringing on the, the property of Apple in any meaningful sense. So Apple has no complaint. They can't stop them from doing it. But the patent gives them the right to stop that. And that's why patents and copyrights are an infringement on property rights. Yeah, because so copyrights, I think this that's a key point you just you're getting at is that they protect only the form of the idea or the expression of the idea, not the actual idea itself, correct? Well, that's a complicated uh, question. Okay. And it's complicated because copyright law, like patent law, and like other types of law, like tax law and antitrust law, are extremely arcane. Um, and to really understand their nuances requires basically a legal specialty. But the point is the advocates of IP law, usually like say copyright advocates, they will use these sort of almost irrelevant nuances. And I say irrelevant because the law could be – it could be one way or it could be the other. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, um, they use this as – as a defense of, of copyright. So for example, if someone like me or you says, um, obviously ideas, you can't own ideas, which to my mind means you can't own patterns of information. And the reason is because information is not an independent thing that exists abstractly in the world um, or independently in the world. Information always has to be stored on some underlying physical medium. In other words, information is really just the impatterning of a substrate or mm -hmm. of a carrier mm -hmm. or of a medium. Um, but because our property theory already has an answer to the question of who owns the medium, right? Who owns the medium like a CD that's imprinted with laser with little bits, like little pits and lands, which represent darks and shines, which represents zeros and ones, which represents digits and bits, which represents bytes, which, re which represents patterns, which represents songs, right? Things like that. Um, this CD is a physical device. It's a piece of material that someone owns, just like a book with, with, with words printed on it. Someone owns that physical piece of paper. Um, so the law already has an answer to that, the private law. The private law says, if there's a question about who owns this object, then we we ask who had it first. What was the contract? So it's contract and first use. Very simple. Um, the answer is already there. So you, you can't say, but who owns the idea or who owns the pattern? Because you can't own a pattern. A pattern is just the way some other thing that's already owned is arranged. This is why uh, other theories like uh, like Roderick Long, who's a libertarian philosopher who's also um, against intellectual property, as I am, uh, one of my friends, um, he's explained that basically the problem with IP is that it's a type of trying to make to, – to create ownership of what he calls universals. Like, for example, if I own a red Mustang car, I own that car. But you wouldn't say that I own red because if I if my ownership of the car means that I own every characteristic or feature or you could say property of the car, like its weight, its age, its size, um, its capacities, its color, 
if owning the object means I own its characteristics, then I own everything in the universe that's red all of a sudden. So you, you don't own universals, you own particulars, you own objects. This is the whole, again, this is the point of property rights is to help solve disputes over the physical, the use of these physical means of action, these scarce resources. So back to your question about copyright. Um, when we make this generalized criticism of the well, what happened was you had ad hoc or isolated types of state action, which were clearly contrary to justice and the free market. The primary examples being copyright law and patent law, which arose for different reasons. They were not lumped together under some general theory initially. Uh, they were different types of, of state granted privileges. Right. One basically was a type of censorship, which is copyright. It was a type of preventing what people could print. Right. It was trying to enhance the monopoly of the crown and the church. Right. And the scribes, like what could be printed, what could be published, what could be shown to the masses. Um, it was trying to control what could be what what knowledge could be spread to people. So it's really a type of censorship. Um, and it's led to something like that because there are certain things you can't publish now. Books have been literally banned in the name of uh, copyright, like the the sequel to uh, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. His family estate got it banned by court because it's a sequel, and it violates copyright law. So that's what we would normally call book banning, right? Um, and then patent law, the purpose was to grant monopolies to people in certain regions um, and then later to protect them from competition. So these things were just ad hoc instances of government injustice. In response to growing criticisms, as I mentioned earlier, in the 1800s by free market economists, the defenders of these, these regimes that were starting to be entrenched into the fabric of the, the Western quasi-capitalist system in the Industrial Revolution era, they started calling it intellectual property. They started lumping it under one term. I don't think it's actually coherent. I don't actually like to call it intellectual property because it sort of grants too much ground, but that's what it's called and to communicate with people. We have to use a similar terminology, right? But um, so what we do is we say, listen, all these things that you guys support, intellectual property of different forms, which would include not just copyright, which protects creative works of expression and art, right? Uh, and patent, which protects inventions and trademark which protects symbols and marks that you use to represent the source of, of, of a good and even things like trade secrets and other specialized works like uh, mask work for semiconductor mask works and uh, boat hull designs and, and database rights in some countries and moral rights in other countries which is the right to attribution and things like that um when 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 the when and by the way defamation law i think also which is which is um, should be considered to be a type of IP law because that depends upon your reputation as well. People mm -hmm. say you have a right to reputation, so you can't be slandered or libeled or defamed by someone. So all these things are lumped together under the rubric of intellectual property. And so we come up with a response. We try to say, listen, let's understand this generally. One problem with this is the fundamental purpose of property rights is what I said before, right? To to solve the problem of conflict in the use of these scarce resources, 
And so ideas or patterns of information are always characteristics of these things, and you can't own an idea. And then what is the response by the copyright advocate? They'll say, oh, well, if you look at the copyright statute in the United States of America from 18, so it's like they'll say, oh, it doesn't protect ideas. It just protects the expression of an idea. Mm -hmm. Now, this is just the weirdest argument you would ever have. It's like, well, okay, first of all, in practice, it's the same problem. Okay, even if – so from my point of view, what they're saying is copyright law could be worse, but it's not worse. <laughs> in other words, copyright law protects some ideas but not all of them because there's a limitation saying that it has to be expressed in a tangible – you have to record it in a tangible medium of expression first, which just means you have to write it down so there's proof that you did it. I mean – yeah, I, I'm glad that they don't protect – and then for patent law, they'll say, oh, well, the patent law has always made the exception for abstract laws of science like uh, uh, the laws of mathematics or the, even the basic laws of physics like e equals mc squared. And I'm just thinking, well, of course, of course these laws make exceptions because if they didn't make exceptions, the human race would have yeah. died off by now. So basically they, they – they, they, they take a file and they shear off the rough edges of their insane communist theory, right, which would undermine real property rights and which would literally kill the human race. They make it barely tolerable. People put up with it because the people that benefit from these laws tend to be producers to some degree. They, you know, they're writing novels. They're making movies. They're ma making pharmaceuticals. So – you don't think of them as complete parasites, even though they're using these laws to enrich themselves because they can stop competition, <laughs> right? Um, but so they, they, they file off the, the rough edges, and then they tell you that you can't complain about their laws because it's not purely evil. It, it doesn't just protect ideas. So… I would say it's true as a legal doctrine that the copyright law is supposed to protect the expressions of ideas um, rather than ideas per se. I, I don't know how it could be otherwise because if you don't express it and record it in some tangible medium of expression, you would never have proof in a lawsuit that you, you had something that you're suing based upon. So right. the only way to have an IP system is to basically have people granted the right to make lawsuits based upon something they can prove, which is something they recorded. But that doesn't solve the problem that you're still giving them the right to control other people's resources based upon this stupid excuse that you came up with the idea first. Yes. Or that they're copy or that they're copying you. I mean, what's wrong with copying? We gotta stop back and think. What's wrong with the free market in everything good about human society and the free market re revolves around copying. Yes. And learning and emulating and transmitting the knowledge of the past to the future so that we can keep building on our base of knowledge, artistic and especially technological. Right? That's why we're richer every year, but not because we find more resources in the ground, but because we keep finding better ways to manipulate these things, which is our technological knowledge. The reason we're richer is because we have inherited this body of knowledge that we can use to guide our actions. The essence of human society, the essence of human existence and progress is this ability to learn from each other and even to compete 
and to copy and to emulate. There's nothing wrong with copying. So we got to stop thinking. We if one thing if there's one thing that we should do is we have to stop using the word theft or stealing or even piracy when someone is just mimicking or competing or copying or emulating what someone else does. There's nothing wrong with learning or competing, and certainly it's not theft to, to, to do what someone else is doing. Well, I want to combine a couple of aspects of the world that I live in here because I'm a libertarian. My listeners uh, also know, for the most part, I think they do, that I'm a musician. So in your essay against intellectual property, you kind of break it down where there's pro IP libertarians, and a lot of them will either use the utilitarian point of view on this or the natural rights point of view. Well, as a musician, I hear a lot when I discuss this with my friends that they take on the utilitarian point of view. So they'll say, well, they'll argue with me, Buck, if, if there's no IP and I make a record and someone copies it or someone else puts it out, I make no money. So in the long run, the music business falls in on itself because no one's going to have the, uh, the will to do any of this without the incentive to make money off the music that they quote unquote create. So, right. yeah. So to help me out personally, at least Stefan nail them to the wall, <laughs> uh, uh, fight that argument for me. Well, there are so many problems with it. You know, sometimes someone will make a uh, a three sentence declaration that would take a book to unpack because it's so riddled with uh, mistaken assumptions and errors. Um, so one of them is this. Um, first of all, I think their factual assumptions are just wrong. Like they're used to the system. They can't imagine. Uh, what a system would be like if we had never had all the distortions that have arisen uh, in the publishing industry itself because of copyright and things like that. They can't imagine what a world would be like, and so they they recoil against it. That's natural, but it's not an argument, really. Um, it's not an argument that the system is just. It, I mean, literally, it's it would be very similar to the argument against abolition of slavery uh, because people can't imagine how cotton will be uh, picked. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how can a plantation be economically viable if we don't have slavery? I mean, you might be right that slavery seems kind of inconvenient and kind of we're going down the wrong road here, but how are we going to have cotton if we don't? You know, So it's like, well, that's not the issue. The issue is, is it just – and the, of course the free market answer would be like, I think people will find a way to do cotton – in a free market way, will things change? Will some people go out of business that are profitable now? Yes. And will some people make more money in a new world than are than are basically poor now? Yes. But all that means is that these laws have an effect. Any law that exists has an effect. Otherwise, no one would mind it. If there was some law that said something like uh, pi is equal to three tomorrow, okay, the, it would be stupid, but it, they couldn't change anything. Pi is not three, right? The number pi. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm just saying if there's a stupid law yep. that has no effect, or if it said uh, anyone who's a Klingon has inferior rights, okay, that might be unfair, but there are no Klingons, and so it wouldn't have any effect. All the laws that are real and that we oppose or that we like 
they have effects. And if they have an effect, that means that getting rid of them, society, uh, the world will look different. So yes, if we eliminate copyright tomorrow and patent tomorrow, I'm not one of these IP abolitionist guys who pretends like every single person in the world will be better if we get rid of copyright tomorrow. Mm -hmm. There are some people who will be worse off. I mean, Disney might be worse off. Uh, the uh, copy patent lawyers and copyright lawyers will be worse off. <laughs> okay, if we get rid of the drug war tomorrow, will the libertarian lawyers who are defending drug clients be better off or worse off? Well, they would lose their livelihood, or they would have to change what they're doing. But that's a good thing. I mean, we're, the reason we we, we defend. You know, we we the libertarians who defend criminals is because we oppose these laws. I mean, partly that's part of the reason. Or, or if you're if you're an oncologist, you're a cancer doctor, and you're 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 a researcher trying to fight cancer. Yeah, if cancer is cured tomorrow, you might be out of a job. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's not a bad thing, I don't think. Um, and I don't even know if most oncologists would. Maybe there might be a few entrenched ones who want to. They want the solution to be doled out in the next hundred years when it's too late for them to suffer. But still, in general, the fact that we got rid of copyright and patent law uh, tomorrow, it would change the industry. Um, and all that is to say is that for musicians, um, another another assumption they're making is that, okay, so you have this assumption by by wannabe novelists and authors and painters and movie makers and – uh, and musicians, like they have this proprietary assumption that I I produce this thing, I own it, and if you take away my rights, I can't make millions of dollars off of it. It's like, well, how, how many people are making millions off of these kind of works in today's world, even with copyright? Mm -hmm. No one, almost no one. Um, so for most people, if you if you got rid of copyright. It's not like you're taking some income stream away from them. They don't have one anyway. In other words, copyright has never guaranteed income. It's just a way to stop some competition, right? Um, so, and uh, that's another fallacy I think some musicians make. Um, um, the other one is that they don't see the unseen costs of the copyright system. It has greatly distorted music. Probably has distorted their own creative processes because they know. I mean, think about Robin Thicke, this guy Pharrell and Robin Thicke. They had this Blurred Line song, which was catchy and fun, and I thought it was great, right, for a pop song. But then they got sued by the estate of uh, – I forgot, the, 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 the black guy who had a, a song that had some similar cowbells or something. You know what I'm That's talking right. about? That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, and they lost – or their music company lost millions of dollars. Now – you don't have to feel too sorry for these guys because they're wealthy and famous and rich, and maybe they themselves have profited by the implicit threat of copyright suits against their own competitors. But the point is, going forward, everyone pays attention to this. If you have a creator, they're going to think, ah, I probably shouldn't do this. I should lean in this direction to avoid a copyright lawsuit. Now, whether that's good or bad, it clearly distorts culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll you'll see YouTube videos all the time where some someone's trying to like say, oh, what what would it be like? Like this this girl, Ali Spang Spagnola, she does like. Uh, imagine if uh, Billy Ellish did Stairway to Heaven, 
and it's kind of funny and creative to watch. But for her to do that, she has to like take these pieces and manipulate them and play them. But you know that she knows that she can only play certain little short sound bites. Otherwise, YouTube's robots will take it down. Right. Okay. Documentaries are are hampered by all this kind of stuff. Like you'll go to a street and you'll film something and someone claims a copyright on the statue you filmed or the building or the people claim personality rights in their faces. You have to blur them or get their permission. It's just a huge impediment all because of this, uh, this intellectual property mentality about ownership of these patterns and knowledge. Um, so I think it actually distorts and impedes and and harms art. This is why I've had, mostly with myself, debates about what's worse, patent law or copyright law? What does more harm to society? Um, on the one hand, copyright lasts for over 100 years. It used to be 14 years, by the way, renewable one time. Now it's the life of the author plus 70 years. It's insane. Mm-hmm. It's insane. It lasts forever, and it's led to criminal penalties. It's led to the state having an excuse to monitor the internet, take down websites, issue these six strikes laws, remove people's access from the internet. Uh, so it's restricted internet freedom, and it's, it's distorted culture in these ways I just kind of alluded to. So copyright law lasts a long time. It's draconian. Can be criminal. I mean, Aaron Swartz, if you remember the guy who helped invent RSS and podcasting, um, committed suicide because he was facing a life in prison for uploading some academic articles from a laptop in a server at Columbia or something like that. It was insane. Um, so, copyright is horrible and evil. Patent law, on the other hand, protects inventions or innovations and only lasts 17 or so years. It doesn't last 100 plus, but it still lasts 17. But I would argue patent law is even worse because the basis of human progress is the gradual accumulation of technological knowledge, Mm -hmm. scientific and technical knowledge, and the ability to use it. And when you have this 17-year rolling buffer or barrier that's like it's like you put a filter on human progress and you're just like a slow 17-year filter on anything you can do, advances you can make. And especially in an economic in – in an exponentially growing age of techno, technical revolutions like we've had the last 100 years at least, especially now, even a two-year period where you just say, this, only this one guy can do this thing. No one else can compete. You basically slow down and stultify human advance, and Mm -hmm. you kill people because when you have less wealth, less resources, less medical techniques that are developed, less pharmaceuticals, people that could have been saved die. So I think the patent system literally kills – I mean the numbers – the numbers are hard to calculate. You could – if you have an alternate history view of – there's one of these science fiction views of the world like I sometimes do. You could argue we've killed billions or trillions of people that could have existed by now. Um, we could have flying cars by now. We could have immortality by now. But we've delayed human progress. So to my mind, the patent system, if I could only abolish one or which one I would abolish first, I would get rid of the patent system first because I think it would make us richer and freer and more powerful and more prosperous. But copyright is horrible too. Again, mm-hmm. it lasts over 100 years and it distorts technology and it censors speech and it threatens it, the liberty on the freedom on the internet. So 
There's nothing good by that. I want to make this clear. It's not like on the balance of things. Oh, there are some good things. There are some good arguments for patent law and copyright law. But the, the, the downsides just outweigh it. I literally think there's nothing whatsoever, not a single thing at all good about patent or copyright law. There's not a single good thing to be said in their defense. Um, coming back to the issue of musicians, the way the world works is <laughs> we should have a just system where people respect each other's rights and respect each other's property. We have a system where we can resolve these disputes that I mentioned earlier, which is called private property law and contract law. Um, within that system, a free market emerges, which means that people tend to specialize um, make things or sell things or produce things they can sell at a profit, um, trade with each other. The division of specialization of labor emerges. Um, so the free market emerges. Competition is part of that process, which means people are just free to enter the field and compete with someone else. If I notice someone else is doing something that's popular, like I have a pizza shop or a bagel shop or uh, I'm selling, uh, making a certain type of comic books in a certain style that gets popular with people. People observe that, and then other people will start competing with you. That means they will go for that, and that's how progress happens. Actually, is people get attra attracted to the things that other people do that happen to be successful, right? But that means that you know your profit margin might be high at first because you're the first guy, and then over time, people start competing with you. McDonald's isn't the only hamburger chain now, and Pizza Hut's not the only pizza chain now, right? And um, um, so over time, it gets harder to make a profit, so you have to keep innovating. And you know what? You could say someone's came in and stole my customers by competing with me, but you didn't own those customers. You certainly didn't own the future business of potential future customers. You have to keep innovating. That's why the free market always benefits the consumer and, and the, uh, because things keep improving all the time. Um, but the point of all that is simply to say that it's the job of the person in society facing this kind of – you could call it legally an, an equal playing field. Everyone has property rights. You can do whatever you want, but you're not guaranteed an income. You're not guaranteed a profit. You're not guaranteed any customers. It's up to you to use entrepreneurial creativity to figure out how to make a profit. This is what we all face in life. And especially if you're in the market, in the, in the free market, you have to figure out how to make a profit. You know, If you want to be a busker, you might can make some money, but you're not going to make as much if you're more successful. But mm -hmm. you might take more risk if you want to – you know, so there's lots of things you have to face. So musicians and poets and novelists and painters are no different from that. They have to figure out how to make a profit. Maybe you can combine it with your career. Maybe you can get a salary. Maybe you can be a professor. Maybe you can make money. Uh, selling novels. Will it be harder to make money uh, selling music if people can compete with you? Probably. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're free to do whatever you want. You can mix to your heart's content. And not only that, in today's world, in 2020, there is copyright law. It's totally illegal for people to copy your stuff. But guess what? They do it because technology has made it impossible to stop it uh torrenting and encryption mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. like that right everyone knows this if you sell a cd i don't know i don't know if any artists make money selling cds right now i've seen these guys at, at these you know little mid-level concerts and they'll have a stack of cds 
sometimes they give them away. I mean, mm-hmm. people don't even want CDs anymore. Maybe some of the some people do. Okay, fine. You might make a little money off of that. You're going to make money off it in other ways, from performing, from uh, from special deals where someone hires you to do the soundtrack for a movie or or something, you know. Um, but the point is, copyright now doesn't guarantee all these millions of guys that are whining about their ownership of their create creations. It doesn't guarantee them any profit. And I don't think it helps them make any profit anyway. It's just a deadweight thing. And in fact, it's harmed them by distorting things and steering them towards the studio and the publisher system, which, yes. which is a remnant of the way this all happened with the Statute of Anne back in 1709 in England, where the publishing houses had the copyright. And then after the, after the Statute of Anne, the authors had it, but they had to end up assigning it back to the publishers to get their stuff published. And that's led to the system we have now, which has only started to be broken in the last 10, 20 years by, by the internet. By technology, by self-publishing, right? Amazon self-publishing, or mm-hmm. just self-publishing in other ways, uh, releasing your music on these little websites where where people do. They'll just record their music on their little computers and they do it themselves. People are doing in runs around the studio, the Hollywood studio, the music industry studio system, and the, the uh, and and the book publishing system. They're doing in runs around this now. Sometimes, uh, for a while, they were trapped into it. So. One benefit of getting rid of copyright is it would help finally put the nail in the coffin of these horrible quasi-guild-like systems which have trapped artists. Yes. I mean, trapped them. Yeah. So I think there's nothing but upside to the artist for getting rid of copyright because copyright doesn't benefit them, really. It doesn't stop copying. It benefits the publishing industry. It distorts everything. Um, and, uh, and it's unjust. <laughs> So another thing I want to touch upon, and you, you did this in the uh, Against Intellectual Property book, and it kind of was one of those aha moments for me at the end. And we'll do it with a little bit of a free market Texas spin, because I think you did something about Rothbard burgers versus something else. Um, and you, what you were getting at is basically if someone's copying someone else in a free market system to represent, to be representing something they're not, it's actually harm on the consumer, not the uh, person A over here. So to touch on that, what's in a free market system, Stefan, and we're going to have people listening to this going, fine, in your evil world where there's no protections for any of us. <laughs> so if there's a Whataburger chain in Texas here, what in a free agent man over here in Austin says, hey, I'm part of that Whataburger chain, and they're not. And they're advertising to the public as though they are. In the free market world, what stops that person? Uh, lots of things would stop it. Uh, okay. Reputation would stop it. Financing would stop it. And lawsuits uh, for fraud or contract breach would stop it. Right. So, um, what, and what you're talking about now is uh, the third main type of I, what they call IP law, intellectual property law, is called trademark law. And in these, in this discussion, I focus mostly on patent and copyright. As I mentioned, uh, the debate really is between which one of those two is the most evil and destructive, copyright or, or patent. Um, a far third would be trademark law, and then others like trade secret law and the other smaller ones I mentioned. Um, 
so I did I did try to cover trademark law too, try to be somewhat comprehensive. And then in some discussions, people raised this issue too. And but it's not completely unrelated to copyright and patent because again, as I said, most people that have strong opinions in a pro IP direction, they don't usually understand the difference between trademark law, patent law, and copyright law. So they'll intermingle these. They'll 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 mix them up together. They'll say, "Oh, Domino's has a patent on their design. That's not right. They have a trademark." You know, so they don't even know the law they're talking about. Um, but they will make arguments that are specious arguments. So, for example, if I oppose, this is why I said earlier we should we should fight really hard to get people from misdescribing copying and competition and learning and emulation as theft or stealing it, they're like literally legally not stealing even if you infringe a copyright it's not stealing it's just called infringement there's a legal action for that for damages but it's not stealing so when courts and news reporters use this word they're they're buying into the basic argument for it so it loads the argument um but so the remind me where we were <laughs> just my train if, if if you've got a Whataburger chain here in Texas and oh, yeah, I yeah. decide to open up right. my own and claim that that's right. the same thing. Right. So so what will happen is people – if you say you're opposed to copyright law, for example, people will – they'll say, well, I, what about plagiarism mm -hmm. or what about fraud? So they will, they will quite often bring up fraud and plagiarism as if those are the bases for this type of law and as if if you're opposed to copyright law – uh, or trademark law, you're in favor of fraud or plagiarism. Right um, now, plagiarism simply means uh, when you make uh, too liberal use of someone else's work without attribution, and it's usually just a contract breach, um, like like a student at a university, for example. They're, they're just it's a private code of conduct. It has like literally nothing to do with copyright and. As a quick example, um, if I had to write a term paper for college and I, um, I, I incorporated a whole chapter from the Bible or from Shakespeare without attribution and pretended like I had written it. Now, number one, I would look like an idiot because everyone was going to find out right away, but, but it would be plagiarism. But it wouldn't be a copyright violation because these works are public domain. It has nothing to do with copyright. Right. On the other hand, if I include five pages of a Harry Potter novel in my dissertation, but I put quote marks around it and I say this is by Harry Potter, it's not plagiarism because I'm admitting that someone else wrote it. I'm not taking credit for it, but it still might be copyright infringement. It probably wouldn't because of fair use, but it could be. So the point is copyright infringement has nothing to do with plagiarism, and yet people will say this. They will hurl this at us. They'll say, oh, if you're against copyright, you're in favor of plagiarism. No, that's not true. It's the same thing with fraud. Now, fraud is a term of libertarian – this is why I like libertarian theory, and I've written on the issue of fraud. To my mind, fraud is really just a type of um, what, you, what you could think of as theft by deception. So it's a type of theft, which means a use of someone's resource, their scarce owned resource – their material resource without their permission, without the permission of the owner. This is the whole basis of property ownership and of contract is does the owner consent or not consent to someone using this resource um, or not? If I invite someone into my home, they're not trespassing. 
If they come in without my permission, they're a burglar, right? Or a robber, a uh, burglar, um, or trespasser. Um, if some girl, some guy on a subway kisses a girl without her permission, he's committing a type of tort or trespass against her body. But if her, she lets her boyfriend give her a kiss, he's not. So it all depends upon consent of the owner, right? This is what it's all about. Um, and so fraud is just if you use someone's resource without their say, you could call it informed consent, which is a, there's a similar doctrine in medicine, right? When you yeah. when you perform an what doctor performs an operation on someone, you're supposed to take their kidney out. He also uh, does an app, you know, he does something else while he's in there. He we wasn't, or he didn't give an adequate explanation to the patient. So they say, oh, it was really trespass because I didn't really consent because it wasn't informed consent. Mm-hmm. It's the same idea behind statutory rape laws or behind uh, uh, child abuse laws. It's the idea that a, someone of a certain age doesn't have the capacity to consent. So even if it looks like they consented and you abuse their body in a certain way, um, it's it's a type of abuse because they, their consent wasn't informed, right? <clears throat> That's the idea behind fraud law. Fraud means that I take your app, your basket of apples, um, and I give you a bad check, or I give you apples that are full of worms, and I lie to you about the condition of the apples. So it's a way of obtaining someone else's property uh, under, say, false pretenses. So it's a theft by trick. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just legal doctrine, legal theory. But the point is. You don't need trademark law, which is another type of IP law, and you don't need copyright law for sure. You don't need any of this in order to have fraud law. Fraud law is simply based upon property rights and contract, right? Um, and and one more thing, the ability to communicate. So implicitly, when these guys say that if you don't have trademark law, then if you don't have a, a right to your reputation and to the name of your company, like Whataburger, like the example you gave, what's to keep someone else from opening up a Whataburger chain and calling it Whataburger when it's really not? Or McDonald's or the Rothbard Burger example that I gave. The mm-hmm. Lachman Burger was the other one. This other Austrian guy I was kind of teasing. Um, so the idea is that the reason these things would be stopped is because of trademark law. Which is just not true. Trademark law is not the reason that would be prevented. Um, they would be prevented for several reasons. Number one, if you deceive your consumer and tell them this is a officially licensed Whataburger chain, right? You're you're saying something communicable to the to the to the um, to the customer. You're saying that. All right, there's a there's a, a recognizable company called Whataburger based in California, in Texas or wherever it is, and they have given us permission to be authorized and all this kind of stuff, right? It's just a lie. Now, as a as a matter of fact, I, I, the original Whataburger chain would instantly publicize this, and it would soon be it would be almost instantly be known that there's a renegade Whataburger chain here that's lying about its nature. Now, either that would dry up their business or it wouldn't. I think it would dry their business up in most cases, but in some cases, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe people say, I don't care if it's the original Whataburger. The, the hamburgers are good. So who's harmed? These customers aren't harmed. But the point is that trademark law gives a property right in the so-called holder of the trademark. Um, so, for example, the trademark law would give Whataburger itself the right to sue the fake Whataburger chain 
on the idea that the value of their trademark has been diminished by this tarnishing of it or something like that, right? Um, but if you're really basing this theory that it's really about fraud, well, the fraud means that this fake Whataburger chain is deceiving some customers. So they're the victims. Mm-hmm. So why don't they have the right to sue? And in fact, they do have the right to sue under fraud law and contract breach law. They already have the right to sue. So what does the trademark law add except it gives the real water chain a right to sue based upon the fake, the fallacious notion that you could have a right to your reputation or your name, which is another type of IP theory, right? Again, it's rights and patterns of information, which I don't think you have. Now, Rothbard and other libertarians, Walter Block and others, have pointed out long ago the problem with defamation law, which I think is the same reasoning that's behind trademark law. It's the idea that you have a right to your reputation because you put effort into building it up and it has an economic value, which again is Marxian. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, and because you created it. Now, this is another thing we didn't get into, but one fallacious idea that underlies a lot of the arguments for IP is what I call libertarian creationism. By creationism, I mean this idea that you have a property right in something that you create. Okay, now I think that's a mistake, and I think that misleads people. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the way you solve a dispute when there's a dispute over a resource is by asking really just two questions. Who had it first? And was there a contract that transferred it from someone to someone else? That's it. Um, None of those questions have anything to do with creation. Creation is an economic concept, not really a legal one. Creation has to do with the fact of transforming or what we call producing, which means that it's a way of manipulating or transforming or rearranging material objects that we own into some more valuable shape. So if you take a bunch of raw materials and you make a Model T Ford out of it, you can sell it for more than you pay to, for the inputs, right? Even accounting for the labor costs. Mm-hmm. So you make a profit. That's what production is. That's what wealth is. That's what transformation is. But Henry Ford or his company didn't own these Model Ts that he made because he created them. He owned them because he owned the raw materials already that he turned into the Fords. If he didn't own the raw materials, he wouldn't have owned the output. You know, if I sneak onto your lawn at night and I take some of your, uh, you have a big rock and I carve a statue into it, I've basically committed vandalism of your property. Right. And even if the statue is nice and it's worth something now, you own the statue because you own the rock that I turned into the statue. I created the statue, but I don't own it. Uh, you could say the workers at Ford's factory created the cars, but again, that's the Marxist idea that yes. the laborers, the, the employees are exploited. But that means you have to ignore a contract because there's a contract between the owner and the employees, and the contract says, you're going to work on my material. Whatever you produce is mine, and I'm going to pay you a salary. That's the deal. The only way to get around that is to abrogate contract which is what marxists and lefties ultimately want to do right they want to they want to use this idea of the marxian idea um that uh, the value of products comes from the labor put into it and therefore there's effectively theft when a when a capitalist makes a profit because mm-hmm. they're taking the surplus value of the labor so it's all it's all intertwined together so intellectual property to my view honestly is 
kind of an offshoot of the same error that produced Marxism and, and socialism because they both focus too much on this idea of labor as the source of value or in the case of IP, labor as the source of property, which leads to this creationism idea. So I, I would say it's important that labor, which is really just means action. It just means one type of action, right? Because action is just what humans do. And some actions we do for their own sake, consumption, or le- we call that leisure. Some actions we do for the sake of further ends down the road, which we call labor. But it's just a subset of action. So just like you can't own action, it makes no sense to say we own our actions. It makes no sense to say that we own our labor, which is the assumption behind this Lockean labor-mixing idea. Right? This is the whole idea that they got everyone confused. Locke was trying to defend us from the previous statist, monarchical, theocratic regimes by saying that everyone has natural rights in their bodies. And the reason is because God gave the earth to everyone and he gave everyone their own bodies. And so you own your body or you own yourself and therefore you own your labor and therefore you own something you mix your labor with. And so it goes. So this little story he came up with was really libertarian motivated but it's metaphorical as hell, and it leads to this idea that we own our labor. Once you start believing that, which is nonsense and is not essential for Locke's argument, if you take that step out, his argument still works. Um, once you make that mistake, you start thinking of labor as a substance that's part of things. Mm-hmm. Hey, it explains the value of products because the labor people put into it. That was Marx and Adam Smith and Ricardo, right? Um, anyway. Yeah, a little bit of a tangent, but but that's kind of where we are on this issue. Yes, and that that was actually that was a perfect bow on the entire conversation because that's a uh, that's something I really wanted you to hit on in this because you hear it even from libertarians like you know I own my body so of course I own the labor that I do with it and like you said that's a very slippery slope right down to Karl Marx so. I appreciate you uh, hitting on that right at the end. Yeah, what, what, what they're confusing, again, is this thing I mentioned earlier, is that you have to carefully distinguish economic from legal concepts. So what they're getting at is that if you own your body, which I think is the right way to put it, we do own our bodies or we should be legally entitled to own our bodies. Once you own your body, that does give you the ability and the freedom to use it as you see fit. So I can say, um, you want me to paint your fence you want to pay me for that, I'm not going to paint your fence. Well, I'm not going to paint your fence unless you pay me. So we have a contract. Um, so I can withhold my labor, my services, my action. I can choose to do it or not to do it because I control my body and I have a right to control my body. I'm not your slave. So as a practical economic matter, having this legal control over your body gives you the ability to say sell your labor, but it doesn't mean that legally you really own your labor. It's very similar to the Bitcoin case of if you own your body and your brain, you ha- and your computer in your house, you have the ability to keep your private keys secret from the world, right? But it would be a mistake to then say well, that means I own my key. Now people say that in colloquial language in common parlance. But what they really mean is I have the practical ability to control so – they're using the economic concept of ownership. Um, but then they, that bleeds for them into legal. So they'll say, well, of course, if someone takes my key, they stole it. They never explain how someone takes your key. I mean how, how do you take someone's key without physically, I don't know, 
coercing or torturing them or stealing or breaking into their house or hacking into the how do you take someone's key you can't just guess it right there's no such thing as mind reading so all these takings are basically actions that are themselves physical violations of physical property rights so in the, in that in which case you don't need to say it's a taking of the key in which case you don't need to say people own these keys so you see lots of sloppiness in terms in in these areas that can be clarified if you just stop and think carefully about the meanings of these terms, the nature of human action, economics, and justice and law. Yes. I love hearing you pontificate on this stuff. Before we go, is there anything um, that I've neglected in bringing up or that you have that you'd like to get across? No, I think anyone who's interested in these ideas, and I know I speak quickly, even though uh, I'm a Southerner, um, (laughs) um, there's a lot compressed in here, especially for someone who hasn't thought about all this. But uh, most of it I have thought out carefully, and I've written a lot about it, and I've collected a lot of material. So if anyone wants to go further, I've got lectures. I've got articles uh, on my site, c4sif.org. And I do have a book um, I'm trying to I'm trying to finally finish this year in 2020, yes. which would be sort of like a, an edited collection of my – libertarian theory articles over the last 20 years. Um, so it's, it should be coming out, I'd say in six months. It's, it's going to be called Law in a Libertarian World. And it will be all online for free, by the way, of course. So um, that will be coming out in the next few months. And it will have IP stuff in there, but lots more than IP. Contract theory, property theory, legal theory, that kind of stuff. Are you doing argumentation ethics in there at all? Yeah, that'll be covered too. That's part of my rights theory, yes. Gotcha, excellent, excellent. I can't wait to for that to come out. Stefan, uh, thank you so much for being here on Death to Tyrants. Once again, I've really enjoyed this. Thanks, Buck, I appreciate it. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that immensely. And I hope maybe for some of you, it changed your mind or at least got you thinking a lot about the origins of intellectual property and Is IP legitimate in a free society? Keep thinking about it. Some of you might have to listen to this podcast a few times. I know when I hear someone is intellectually with the depth that Stefan Kinsella brings, sometimes I actually have to listen to it a few times and then it, boom, that aha moment clicks and you can't go back once you're there. So thank you once again, Stefan, for being here. I love chatting with you about this stuff. I will link to where you can get his pamphlet slash book against intellectual property, of course, in the show notes page for this episode. So you guys, if you haven't joined the Libertarian Party and you're thinking about it at all, jump in, just do it. We There's a big movement afoot here and we are trying to make the Libertarian Party libertarian again. And if it's something you want to do, join us. You can join with my link at www.lp.org slash death to tyrants. There's a little welcome for my listeners on that page. To find me, of course, you guys know probably on Facebook, facebook.com slash death to tyrants podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Buck Rebel, B-U-C-K-R-E-B-E-L. And you can support the show if you'd so choose. That would be at patreon.com slash death to tyrants. I think that's about all the links I got for you this week. Let me tell you something real quick. If you've noticed, the production of this podcast has been, well, dare I say, great or perfect. Over the last, let's say, two months, 
towards the end of 2019 up till now. And that is because I've got a producer now. It is the excellent, excellent Podsworth Media. You guys can find them at www.podsworth.com. Chris Williams is my guy over there. He also produces the Tom Woods Show, the Bob Murphy Show, and many others. In fact, I was talking to him on the phone the other day. He says, I've got 25 shows I'm doing per week. So you know the guy's damn good. And if you like the production on this show, which I'm sure you do, of course you know he's good. So if you've got a podcast, I guess he just still needs more work, right? Who, who can only do 25 podcasts per week? We need more over there. If you got a podcast and you'd like it well-produced and all of the bells and whistles that come with that, Podsworth Media, my guy Chris Williams over there, he is the best. He's damn good. So go over and pay them a visit at podsworth.com. Until next week, you guys have a great one. I'll see you then. You get split in fucking half, cause I call the hologram brass. But I am the center inside the placenta of math. You clash with cyanide gas and die fast. Rhythmical equivalent of solids, liquid and gas. We smash a sinus with the power of Lord Titus. But I am the virus inside of the iris of Cyrus. Like the sound of the Death to Tyrants podcast? Our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.